Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. From across Louisiana, we're out to lunch with Peter Raschuti, Stephanie Regal, and Christian Mader. Peter Raschuti is Tulane University's Freeman School of Business Professor of Finance. Stephanie Regal is editor of the Baton Rouge Business Report. Christian Mader is publisher and editor of The Current. It's business Louisiana style. Hi, and welcome to Out to Lunch Louisiana. I'm Christian Mader in Lafayette. I'm Peter Raschuti in New Orleans. And I'm Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge. As we continue to navigate the fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic, Peter, Christian, and I are taking a weekly statewide look at what's happening in the world of business and finance. The pandemic has forced us to confront a number of economic issues that were due for examination, and one of them is the rental market. Even without the added stress of reduced pay or a lost job, renting can be a strained relationship for both landlord and tenant. Marco Nelson has come up with an app that goes some way toward improving that relationship. It's called RentCheck. Marco launched RentCheck in 2019, and it's already being used in all 50 states. Marco is going to be joining us in just a few minutes. But first, beef. Dr. Shannon Gonsolin's family has been raising cattle in south-central Louisiana since 1770. Yes, I did say 1770. It wasn't till 236 years later in 2006 that Gonsolin land and cattle officially switched to producing fully grass-fed cows with no hormones or processed grains. Dr. Shannon Gonsolin, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you. Hey, so Dr. Gonsolin, you know, the, the first thing that comes to mind is I understand that, that, that um, you guys started seeing actually like a orders back up for your products earlier in the pandemic. So the first question I, I'm curious about is, has that really kept going? I mean, have consumers continued lining up for, for, for your product since May? They, they have. And it's, it's you know, the, 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 I guess the mindset, whenever things first kicked off in February and March, what ended up happening is that a lot of the large processors that produce a lot of the beef in the United States started getting these COVID positive employees. So they had to start shutting down their facilities. But whenever you only have three major companies handling 80% of the beef capacity in the U.S., if you have one or two of those guys shut down, it's a dramatic effect. Um, so what ended up happening is that you started to see a lot uh, less beef on the supermarket shelves. Uh, I think people kind of got into a little panic about trying to uh, get some, some beef. And we always could and always have been uh, uh, offering clients to buy quarters, halves, and whole sides of beef. And for the most part, that's kind of been a, a little small part of our, our business. Um, but since the pandemic, I mean, we can't keep up with those orders. And people are starting to maybe realize or, or know it's available, one thing. Um, and they can, it's the cheapest route out is to buy that and they can stock their freezer for a whole year. So we've been getting a lot of orders and unfortunately, which is good, the orders have, those have been backed up because the processors that we have done, that we do business with locally are in the same boat. They're jammed up with everybody trying to get 
um, local product in their freezer. So they're getting jammed up pretty hard too. Um, actually, we just opened a processing facility yesterday uh, in Abbeville to take care of our own animals uh, on clients and to offer another avenue to uh, get animals processed here in South Louisiana. Dr. Shannon, give us a sense of just how big your operation is, how big it was before the pandemic, and how big it is now, just in terms of the, the amount of, of meat you're, you know, you're producing and getting to, to market. Before um, we were, um, we, we have a relatively small operation. When you look at the numbers, uh, we're small and we're big, I guess. We, we process about 40 animals a month, which 40 animals a month is not a big number when you're talking amount of beef in the U.S., but 40 animals for a small producer is pretty big. Um, so we, we were doing that before. Um, and during the pandemic, uh, we also became a, a customer of Ralph's supermarkets. So that also added another, um, um, I guess, strain on an already strained system um, to produce ground beef for Ralph's in the pandemic when we're trying to produce ground beef for everything else and beef cuts for everyone else. Um, we, haven't, we haven't expanded anything just yet because other than the process facility that we opened yesterday, because we don't want to expand uh, um, uh, too quick. We want to be able to, we, there's plenty enough beef for people to, to get. So the shortage and the problem is not the cattle, is the processing facilities and is getting that end product to the consumer right now that's bottlenecked. Um, so we didn't expand anything because we have plenty of cattle in the pipeline. Um, we're just kind of waiting to see how things are going to fall out over the next few months as far as are we still going to see this high rise of clients wanting to fill their freezers with quarters, halves, and holes. And if they do, that's great. We can accompany that. We can take care of that. Uh, we're just not sure if that's going to continue or if that was panic driven or for what reason, you know. Uh, this is Peter, doctor. I just wanted to ask you about... Uh, you're selling big pieces of, of, uh, of meat there. Uh, do you also sell to the, the retail trade? I mean, I have a very small Weber. I can't imagine putting an entire cow on the grill. We do. So we, we, we have, we sell, um, we sell at the farmer's markets in Lafayette, Baton Rouge, and New Orleans, uh, which we, we have our product completely vacuum packed in individual cuts. So you can buy steaks, you can buy ground meat, you can buy whatever you want, and, and, and we do custom processing. So if somebody wants to call and get a whole cow grounded up, we can do that. Um, so whatever they want to get done to, to fill their freezer, we can make it happen. So you're right, you know, so people can buy quarters, halves, and holes, but that's just one part of it. We also have a meat market at our ranch that we sell at. Um, we also sell, again, at the Rouse's uh, uh, markets. Not all of them, but about 26 of them at this point. Um, and we sell to several restaurants in New Orleans and, and, and Lafayette that unfortunately those guys got hammered so hard with all this pandemic. I mean, they're not sure which way's up, you know, which is unfortunate because, you know, you hate to see that happen. Um, so we're just waiting for those orders to start trickling back in. Um, so we can, we can sell either you a whole cow or one T-bone, however you want it. So, Dr. Shannon, I mean, something that, 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 that caught my attention is you're saying that, you know, the, the processing plant was really the bottleneck. So you guys have opened a processing facility. Clearly, you're, you know, keeping an eye out for whether the trends that you've been experiencing are something that will sustain for the long term in, in terms of figuring out how much to scale up what you do. Right. So so I am curious, though, what what happens if the demand doesn't play out? Right. Like the, the, the moves that you've made 
uh, to, to meet the demand in, in whatever way that you can. What, 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 how, how do you scale back? We've heard horror stories, of course, of businesses that have scaled up and then found, okay, well, this situation is no longer what we anticipated, and you know that could be problematic. Correct. And, and we, that, that's one thing we didn't want to do is jump into a brand new facility thinking that this COVID response and this COVID buying is going to be the norm. You know, we don't know. You know, um, so what we what we're doing with the process facility is also offering to process other people's animals. So it's not just our own, um, but uh, is to if Mr. Bujo down the road has a calf, he wants to get processed. Hey, bring it. We can take care of it for you also. So it's not going to be just our product that we could be running through the process facility. We're going to try to open it up to anybody who might need that. Uh, that you're talking about deer hunters too. Um, you know, um, a, a lot of guys. A lot of you know what's happening. We see. And it's interesting, we kind of see almost a circle. You know, um, our grass-fed business and our model is, is, is nothing more than just going back to the basics. And you see kind of a circle. There's a lot of people who buy our product and look and say, man, that's the way grandma used to do it. And that's the way my mama used to do it. Uh, um, as far as, you know, the, the beef taste and the texture and everything. And I think we're seeing it also, I'm hoping this COVID thing started a little revolution to where we start seeing more people going back and buying these quarters, halves and holes and getting them to their freezers and, 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 and doing it that way because you cut out a lot of waste. Um, and you cut out a lot of undue cost, and you can. It, it's 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 a. I think it's a better way of doing it. Of course, you're never going to take away the feedlots, and we're never going to take away the capacity that is needed worldwide to produce a protein like beef. So we're not trying to um, come in and, and 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 change the world. We're just offering. You know, there's a Ford out there. We're, we're offering a Chevy. Um, that's kind of what I tell clients. You know, we're not trying to. Um, um, be the biggest producer in the world or anything like that. We're just trying to fill a little niche. But I think he's, he, we're starting to see a lot of people that are um, wanting to go back. A lot of clients who look at our product want to know when it's produced, how it's produced, how it's raised. They have a lot of questions. And we try to answer all those questions for them as much as we can. We have a much more educated consumer out there um, at, at, in the, the 25 to, say, 35-year-old group. We have that range that wants to know how that animal was handled, how it was processed, you know, uh, was it humanely treated? There's a lot more questions that, that are out there with the consumer, and, and we can answer all those. You know, we have clients come out there and, and, and pick their own animal if they want to. Now, some do, some don't, but, I mean, we can have it to that process to where we can have that in your freezer within 7 to 10 days, uh, which nobody else can do as far as the large processors go. It's just too much of a transportation nightmare so anyway so we have a little niche market and uh, I, I think what's happening is that we're going to see i'm hoping that uh because this COVID thing pushed people to start buying their own beef um uh, in large amounts that they're going to continue now again if that's going to continue i'm not sure and now you're also a vet right um so how does that work? I mean, and, 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 and you have, so you have a slaughterhouse and a vet practice. I mean, any, any incongruities there or do any of your uh, customers have a problem? No, it's all good. It's all good. Um, you know, we, uh, I work two days at the clinic and three days on the ranch. That's kind of how my schedule is right now, you know? Um, and, uh, so no, we, and, and, and through my veterinary career, I, I met a lot of producers. Um, and a lot of those guys we buy beef from, you know, because um, we can't handle 
Um, you know, our herd is about 150 mama cows, which we're not very big. So we also uh, go out to other producers and um, try to contract their calves from them. So they'll raise the calves for us under our guidelines and we sign a contract with them and then we pick up those animals to feed to feed the pipeline. And, and that's something that needs to be done, especially if we start to increase any numbers, we're gonna have to lean on those guys too and, and get animals in the pipeline to make this thing continue to move forward. And doctor, the last question I wanted to ask you was the fact that you switched over to this grass-fed model in 2006 and that was before people really started talking about this i mean where did it come from well we always produce calves at our ranch you know and and, and to be honest it was always pretty much a tax write-off or something like that and you know i look back and i said i'm a veterinarian and if i can't produce an animal that's not a tax write-off then there's something wrong so we looked at different models back then and back then that you know organic was just starting to kind of get circulating um natural was being tossed around but there was no one regulating what you could do so you could call yourself jim smith organic and sell organic eggs for ten dollars a dozen there was no one regulating yourself well in 06 the, the american grass-fed association had um, a third party verification. You cannot join their, 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 um, their organization unless they sent a veterinarian down for two days to our ranch to go over our complete program to make sure that we're doing what we said we're doing. That was the only organization who was doing any kind of regulating the membership. And we thought that was a great marketing tool because it's not just us saying what we're doing, it's somebody else verifying it. And the grass fed model is not that different. I mean, we still vaccinate. We still do all the herd health policies that we do. Um, the only three things we don't do is give them processed feed. We don't give them any antibiotics to grow. Uh, I'm sorry, an an hormones to grow. Um, and if they get sick and they require antibiotics, we treat them, but we don't run them through our pipeline. Um, so our herd health program is pretty doggone good. So we don't get very many sick animals. And um, so it's not rocket science or something to do. It's, it's actually a, a pretty easy, it was an easy transition for us to do that, I'm, I'm saying. And um, so that's kind of why we did it. And, and so far, it's been doing great for us. Dr. Shannon, thank you so much. Dr. Shannon Gonsolin is the owner of Gonsolin Land and Cattle, Bayou Tesh Veterinary Clinic, and Atchafalaya Animal Hospital. Dr. Shannon, thanks again so much for joining us on Out to Lunch, Louisiana. Thank you. You're listening to Out to Lunch Louisiana with Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge, Christian Mater in Lafayette, and I'm Peter Raschuti in New Orleans. If you've ever rented an apartment or an office, you'll have gone through the usually upbeat experience of moving in and the typically much more painful process of moving out. Yeah, the, the painful part of moving out is usually the argument over the security deposit. The tenant wants the total security deposit back. The landlord won't give it back because there's a hole in the wall. I'm sure you've been through something similar to this as either a tenant or a landlord. Marco Nelson has created an app called RentCheck that helps take the strain and pain out of the landlord-tenant relationship by standardizing the move-in and move-out process. The RentCheck app walks you through a series of steps that documents and records a tenant's move-in and move-out. Both the tenant and landlord have a set of time-stamped photos that they sign off on, and that simply and efficiently does away with all those ugly disagreements. Marco such a great product, such a great idea. Welcome to Out to Lunch. 
How you doing? Thanks for having me. Marco, RentCheck has only been up and running since 2019, but it's already being used in all 50 states, including Hawaii and Alaska, as well as in Canada and Australia. You have six full-time employees, and you recently raised some investment capital. You're really on to something here. So what happens now? Do you sit back and watch people download the app and get rich, or do you have to keep working on it to fend off the competition? Um, what does the day-to-day of being a successful app developer look like these days? Yeah, thanks. I mean, uh, it, it's never-ending. You know, the this this initial inspection piece is really just the starting point that that we thought was uh, the, the platform that would bridge the gap between renters and the property managers and was the start of the data collection so then we could do a lot more things in the future to make the entire rental process uh, a better experience and transparent for, for all people that are involved. Um, so a lot of, you know, making sure our system can grow and handle the, uh, the growth that we're seeing and then also talking to customers, getting feedback and continuing to develop the product to ensure that we're building towards the, the long-term future that we want as a company. So, so walk us a little bit through how this actually works. I mean, is it, um, you, you know, you, you set up the app so that tenants and landlords can basically have like a, a single point of data to work from. But I mean, how do, how do we get the photos taken? How do we make sure that we are properly cataloging all of the wear and tear that exists in a rental property? Yeah, great question. And, and it kind of relates to the, to the growth we've seen during this environment. Uh, the way it works, say you're a property manager, we're selling to property management companies uh, right now. Um, you know, if they have a, a renter that's moving in, say on Friday, they simply go into our dashboard, set up the property, setting up a property is simply the, the address, the types of rooms that are included in that property, whether it's a kitchen, as a laundry room, we kind of collect all that information up front. And then they simply set a due date of when the tenant's moving in and enter in their email address. And then we as a company handle the rest. We notify the resident um, with emails and notifications saying, hey, uh, you're moving into such and such property. Uh, your landlord wants you to use rent check to perform your move-in inspection. And then when the renter signs up, that inspection's preloaded in the app and we guide them step-by-step through the property, uh, telling them exactly what to take photos of, how to take those photos, and then ask them questions uh, about that uh, specific object they took a photo of. Say it's the front of a fridge. We'll ask them, you know, are there dents in the fridge? Rate the condition, do the lights work, et cetera. They document the entire property. And then all of those photos they sign off on are uploaded to the cloud and the landlord gets a notification once it's complete, can review it and say, okay, we both agree that this is what it looks like at move in. If it's left this way at move out, you'll get all of your deposit back. And then they follow the same process at move out and we compare the photos and show what may have changed uh, during the, the, the rental period and what deductions may need to be taken, if any. Who pays for this? Is it a, is it a free app for the tenant or do the landlords or the real estate companies have to have to buy it? And, and how do you get paid? Yeah, so, so right now we, get, we uh, make money by charging the property management companies, landlords, property management companies that are using our platform. Uh, so essentially they pay us a, a monthly fee and then they send out the requests to all of their tenants or even their maintenance personnel who may be doing some of these inspections because we offer move in, move out inspections, periodic inspections, annual inspections, and then a turn inspection, which essentially is to document a property to make sure it's ready for the next tenant to move in. Marco, this sounds like one of those great ideas that is developed because of an unpleasant personal experience. Is that, is that what happened to you? Uh, partially, yes. I, I was, uh, during my naval career, I purchased properties because I, I moved a lot across the country and became a, a property manager 
Uh, and so I started to feel the pain points around arguing with, with tenants of mine or when I rented and then lots of friends of mine, uh, you know, had bad experiences. And then when I decided to go back to Tulane to get an MBA, I was pitching the idea uh, to classmates. And that's when I bumped into my co-founder, Lydia, who was doing her JD MBA at Tulane. And she was in the process of suing her landlord. And so we both kind of bonded over that and decided to figure out, okay, how can we kind of build something that sits between both the property managers and the tenants to, to find a solution that works for both parties. So, so, so Marco, I mean, this makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I've been a renter and I know what it's like to have your security deposit lifted from you. And at some point, right, there's this sort of impasse about like, Hey, that was there or not. I mean, you know, I, I wonder, I mean, in your experience, has this really eliminated that discussion? I mean, forgive me a feeling like it could be too good to be true, right? That there still has to be some measure uh, that a landlord can find that's like, no, 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 you know, that paint chip was you. I mean, like, can you really cover entire property such the landlord has no way of saying, hey, Christian, you damaged my house? Uh, yeah, so, so, you know, we're not at the 100% solution yet, but 90% of most arguments uh, can be settled very easily with photo evidence, whether it's a hole in the wall, a giant scrape on the floor, you know, a, a dent in the front of the fridge. You know, most of these things are fairly obvious, uh, and having a process and a set of data that goes along with that uh, settles the majority of the disputes. Um, now, there is a small percent, whether it's smells, uh, if somebody has an animal on carpet, you know, things like that, you're obviously going to need to send somebody in person to maybe check that. But the efficiencies that, that we bring and the, the trust that's built between the resident and the landlords, when in the past, you know, a resident goes into a property having experienced lost their deposit before, they then treat the property uh, in that way as if they're going to lose their deposit, right? Uh, and so when they come in and they're on the same page and have the trust from the beginning from their landlord, they're going to treat that property in a much better way because they know that the landlord wants to give them back their deposit. And so there's efficiencies, uh, you know, that are produced as a byproduct of using this that make it, you know, even better uh, scenario for both parties. Marco, are y'all the only ones doing this? I mean, is this a, a truly unique idea or, or are there similar competitive apps out there? And, and if not, have you, uh, you know, do you have patents uh, pending? Yeah. So, so when we started out, we were the only ones uh, in the space that uh, decided that we thought uh, tenants should be part of the process. So there are, uh, you know, applications in this area in the past that allowed you to document a, a property. And it was essentially you paid a service and you had your own employees go and document properties. Uh, and they weren't really guided walkthroughs. You just kind of picked a room, took a bunch of photos, uh, and that was that. And so what we brought that's new is one, we thought, hey, tenants should be part of this process. And they should be guided through as if they had the property manager walking with them. Um, and then the second piece, uh, you know, was um, that we wanted to tag all, all of this information so that it could be easily compared over time. Uh, now, since, since COVID has hit, we've seen the competitors see our product as we've taken customers from them and tried to uh, copy some of the things we're doing. We do have patents on a lot of the new stuff that we implemented, and we kind of expect that we'll be able to grow quick enough uh, and be ahead of the, the types of things we're going to introduce additionally to the product to stay ahead of the competition. And most of us are thinking of a landlord where the landlady has one piece of property on the other side of a double or whatever, but you're, um, there are people that own hundreds of pieces of property. Um, how do you deal with them as, as clients? It's, it's, it can't be really the same, uh, the same method. 
Uh, yeah, it's, it's a little bit different. And so, you know, the, the, the rental market is fairly fragmented uh, across the board. You know, half of the entire market is managed by small independent uh, landlords or small property management companies, which, which kind of operate and think differently than the other half of the market, which is the larger kind of institutional property management companies. Um, and so we've kind of, uh, you know, built our product in a way that we can uh, onboard and self-serve the smaller property management companies and the individual landlords. We offer, you know, you can sign up, use it on one property for free. And then as you add more properties, you have to start paying. Um, and, and so we don't have to focus on them as much. We can kind of grow and we can kind of focus on the, the, the target customers we're going after now, which are the property management companies that have, you know, a couple hundred properties to a couple thousand properties at this stage so that we can grow quickly as a company. You know, so it comes down to marketing and the smaller individual landlords tend to have to market to them a little bit more like consumers than B2B marketing. And so we're kind of working through that as we grow as a company. So, uh, you know, in the rental space right now, it's certainly around the, the, the pandemic, right? The big question that people have is, you know, people keeping up with their rent, the sort of questions of, you know, uh, really financial stability. But, it, it you know, what you do, I, I have to ask if there are sort of any really uh, significant, you know, challenges or changes or diversions that are related to doing this business in the COVID space. I mean, is, are you impacted by the fact that renters are waiting to pay their rent or they're having to work this out? Or does it really just kind of blow right by? what y'all do uh yeah so we've actually seen an increased uh, growth and adoption we've you know been growing very quickly over the last couple months and this is you know simply because you know property management is core to you know to providing roofs for people's heads and and inspections on properties is a core piece of that whether you're going to renew a lease you're going to go do maintenance and so with with people not being able to send their property managers to properties to go do inspections uh, we've actually become a, a viable solution for them to say, hey, just send it. The, the resident can do it in, in, the, in their own time, feeling comfortable, stay contactless, and you still get a good digital picture of what that property looks like. And you can continue to do, you know, to, to, to do your business as a property management company, even during these constraints or with you know, cutting costs, you don't have to pay employees to go out and drive to, to all these properties. So we've actually kind of been benefited a little bit from it and, and, and hope we can continue to do so. It's such a it's a, such a promising success story. I have to ask you, uh, are there any like parallel sectors that you could grow into that, you know, you might be able to take an app like this and adapt it to some other type of, you know, contractual arrangement? Or, you know, are you just hoping to sell this to some big company and cash out in a few years? No, we, we have, a, you know, a grand vision, me, my co-founder of what we think the, the you know, the process around, uh, you know, anytime you rent or pay money to use something else uh, for, for a period of time, whether that's short-term rentals, whether that's cars, you, you know, et cetera, um, there's a lot of pieces around that. And so we're really focused on how can we make uh, a lot of these processes more transparent via documentation and standardizing a process. Uh, and so that's kind of what we're focused on. We're just kind of uh, you know, found this to be an area that was uh, highly ignored in the past. And the way consumers, residents are changing and want to be more involved, uh, we felt we could solve this problem and grow, grow very quickly to, uh, you know, have, a, have an entry point as a business to then build to the grand vision uh, down the road. That's uh, Business 101, find a problem and solve it. Marco Nelson is co-founder and CEO of RentCheck. Marco, thank you so much for joining us at Out to Lunch, Louisiana. Thanks for having me. 
And thank you for joining us for this edition of Out to Lunch Louisiana. We edited these conversations to fit into the time slot here on your NPR station. You can hear longer versions of these conversations wherever you normally get your Out to Lunch podcast. If you're not an Out to Lunch podcast subscriber, search for Out to Lunch, Out to Lunch Baton Rouge, or Out to Lunch Acadiana on your podcast app. At some point, we're going to go back to hosting out to lunch around the lunch table. But for right now, Commander's Palace in New Orleans is closed. But you can have a range of ready-to-cook items shipped from Commander's Kitchen to yours anywhere nationwide. Information is at goldbelly.com. Our Lafayette Out to Lunch restaurant, The French Press, is open at 50% capacity, and you can get delivery through Waiter or Grubhub. In Baton Rouge, Mansur's on the Boulevard is open. They have 50% occupancy, and you can get pickup. Out to Lunch Louisiana is a production of INO Broadcasting. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical director is Eric Merle. And photos from this show on our website and social media are taken by Jill LaFleur. I'm Peter Raschuti in New Orleans. I'm Christian Mader in Lafayette. And I'm Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you back here next week for more Out to Lunch, Louisiana. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base joneswalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit hancockwhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at mitchellforeman.com. <laughs>